Amen. So I've got some slides just to kind of help us as we come into this passage this morning. To understand chapter 60, we need to just have a little run up to see where we've come from over the past few weeks. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, God made huge promises to Abraham. He said, I will give you a land, a people and a blessing. Can you see that? It should be on the screen there. And that he would inherit this land, that he would have lots and lots of children, and there would be blessings for him and his family and for the entire world. And as we followed through, there was kind of ups and downs in the life of Abraham. We saw him fall in chapter 12. We saw him kind of rise in chapter 13 and 14. And last week we saw in Genesis 15. If you have your Bibles open, just look at it. Verse 2 of chapter 15. Abraham asks God, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. What he's asking is, is, is the promise of children going to come down through my servant? Is that how you're going to work it? And then if you scan your eyes to verse 18 of chapter 15, God says, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so on. And the question we've been looking at all the way through this is, will Abraham trust in the God who promises all these things? That's kind of the question that's hanging over this whole series. Will Abraham trust in the God who promises all these things. And that's how we get to chapter 16. That's how we get to where we are in chapter 16. And so the question goes further. It goes to Abraham, will he trust? The question to us is, do we trust in the God of all promises? And as we read chapter 16, I think there's three things we can notice. It is an absolutely shocking read. I don't think we can ever get away from that or we should get away from that. It is shocking to read, so it's important that we look at it and understand what's going on. The second thing is, I think it encapsulates the gospel message of good news. The good news that God has come and he sees sinners in their states. And he restores and blesses them. And the third thing is, it is real and it is raw. And we probably don't believe that just now, but it will be very relatable to us. What goes on in chapter 16, we will be able to relate to for how we understand and see and feel life to be like. So the the big question for us is, do we trust in the God of all promises I just want to kind of talk us through what the structure will be for this talk. It's hard to find points for this because it is um, quite a difficult passage to kind of work our way through. So I've kind of, um, you'll see on the screen, um, I've got kind of um, some slides, but they don't get working, that's okay. Um, The structure of the talk will go like this. Abraham doesn't trust in the God of promises and it wreaks havoc in the lives of the people around him. Abraham doesn't trust in God's promises and it wreaks havoc. That's kind of verses 1 to 6. And then we see in the back half of the passage, verse 7 to 20, yet God doesn't abandon his people. And he sees and hears the suffering wanderer. We're going to spend most of our time just in verses 1 to 6 to kind of 
see Abraham and his sin and Sarai and her sin. See the havoc that it causes. And I think it works like this, that it's almost like a jeweler who's bringing forward this pure, glorious, priceless diamond. And he brings it forward on a black pillow so you can see it all the more. And what we see is Abraham's sin and the wreckage that that causes and God's glorious, wonderful, fatherly character. Searching for the lost and restoring. So let's look at verses 1 to 6 where Abraham and Sarah kind of don't trust in the promises of God. And let's just work our way through some of these verses If you want to know, Abraham is about 86 years old when this occurs and he has no children, but he's been promised that he'll have loads of descendants. So that kind of sets up what's going to happen. So Sarah comes up with this idea. Look at verse 2. Sarah comes up with this idea. Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servants. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And so... Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai and Abraham's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Understand, this is horrific. She is prostituting her servant. Someone who kind of worked under her or more likely was in forced labour under her. She prostitutes her servant and she kind of structures this adulterous affair for her husband and very soon Sarai feels the effects of this carry on reading verse 4 he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived that is Hagar she looked on contempt on Sarai and Sarai said Abraham may the wrong be done may the wrong be done to me be be on you sorry that's a weird sentence may the wrong done to me be on you So Sarah kind of tells her husband, aren't you going to fix this? What are you going to do about this situation? And understand, none of these people are painted well. Because then Abraham responds in verse 6. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He kind of just bats it off and says, just do to her as you please. And so pregnant Hagar has to run off into the desert, returning to Egypt, her homeland. That's where... um, the, the, the spring that she goes to on the way, the spring in Shur is on its way to Egypt. She was heading back to her homeland, pregnant through the desert. What happens here is horrific. <clears throat> and so the question is, will Abraham trust in the God who promises? And what we see is that Abraham doesn't trust God, he's given these huge promises in chapter 15. God says, <clears throat> I am going to give you children. He doubles down on the promise he made in chapter 12. And Abraham, not trusting in the God who made these promises, goes headlong into a situation to try and bring about the promises of God himself. The the phrase I think that kind of sums it up is he uses man-made ways to get God-given promises. That's what he does. He has man-made ways to get God-given promises. 
the slide for that, that's fine. I think the slides are now done, so that's okay. Um, he has man-made ways to get God-given promises. What Abraham does is he works his own way to get the promises that God has given to him. Sarah seeing that her fertility cycle just isn't happening. There's nothing happening on that front. She says, how about we use my servant as a surrogate? How about we use her as a way to get the promises? And understand again just what she's doing. She is saying, she's prostituting her um, servant, but she is also putting her marriage at stake. And Abraham is passive. He's not comforting his wife saying, no, 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 don't worry. We'll trust in God and he'll bring it through. His, his, his wife who is obviously struggling, he does nothing to comfort her. And this is the very man that a chapter ago was called the righteous by God. He didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. He listened to the voice of Sarah, his wife. And we just think, classic, same old Abraham doing what he's always done. Chapter 12, we saw God made huge promises to him. And then he kind of went into Egypt and gave his wife away and said it was her sister. So she went off with Pharaoh to kind of save his own skin. We think, same old Abraham doing the same thing again, like deja vu. But what's really interesting about this passage is this. It's not just same old Abraham. It's same old humanity. Humanity doing what humanity has done all this time. I think that the author of Genesis, the person who wrote this, wants us to think back to Genesis chapter 3. I think there's kind of a deliberate mirroring of what went on in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve ate of the fruit with Abraham and Sarai where they took Hagar. If you keep your um, book open in Genesis 16, you can flick back and forth if you want, but if you keep your book open, I'll kind of run through what goes on in Genesis chapter 3. At first, there is a lie. Now in Genesis 3, the serpent says to uh, Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He kind of plants this seed of doubt leading to this temptation that goes on. Now look at 16 verse 2. Sarai says to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Again, there's a subtle lie that goes on. Up until this point, Sarah has, had, has been prevented by the Lord from having children. But we know from what God has said that that will not go on longer. There's a really subtle lie in what goes on. There's stronger links. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 3, listen to what it says. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, and listen to this, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband as a wife. Now listen to Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I think the the person who's written the story in chapter 16 and in chapter 3 is the same person, and he's deliberately using the same words so we think similar things. As well as that, there's kind of the blame shifting. I hope you noticed that at the end of chapter 3, when we read it earlier, kind of Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Sarai said in chapter 16, verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you, Abraham. And Abraham says, Not my problem, your servant. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. There's this blame shifting going on. And I think the last thing that kind of marks the similarities is just the passivity of Abraham. Throughout the Bible, Adam is slammed for shirking his responsibility and his passive nature as he stood beside Eve as she ate of the fruit and handed it to him. And that's what we see in 16. Abraham doesn't put up a fight to save his marriage, doesn't put up a fight to stick by the promises of God, doesn't put up a fight to stop Hagar being harshly dealt with and fleeing into the desert. It's almost like a rerun of Genesis chapter 3. And I think, I think the, the reason for this is so the author knows that if we were in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing. I think that's what's going on here. Even this great, great man of faith, Abraham, who's praised throughout the Bible, he does the same mistake. And so it's not just same old Abraham, it's not just same old humanity up until this point, it is same old us. Abraham and Sarah looked at Hagar as a way to grab the promises of children. Adam and Eve looked at the fruit as a way to grab the blessings of God, knowledge of good and evil. We look at sin, all types of sin, as a way to grab the good promises of God outside of him. That's what we do when we sin. We distrust God. We use man-made ways to get God-given promises. We use our own way to get the good gifts of God. So how do we do that? What are some of the ways that we grab at the promises of God? And there are loads of promises. So I'm going to focus just on the promises that were given to Abraham and see how they relate to us. The promises of land and people and blessing. Okay, so how do we grab at the promise of land without trusting in God? Let me ask, do do we look for a way to get to the land that Jesus has won for us, the saving place, the return to presence with God himself through any means except through Jesus? Do we have trust that the death of Jesus is enough to save us completely? And they may be quite, quite obvious answers if you've been Christians for a long time, but Let me ask, do we feel we add anything by our Bible reading, by our morning prayer, by pretending like we enjoy church on Zoom to what Jesus has already done for us? 
And the flip of it is, is do we feel guilty when we don't do those things? Thank goodness we are not saved or brought to the land by any man-made ways, but only through the way that God has given. I've said this quote before, but let me kind of read it again. If God were to count on us to cooperate in this joint venture of our saving, our contribution would be just enough to put us in hell forever. We need grace totally to come through Jesus. So that's kind of land. That's kind of one of the ways we kind of grab at the promises without trusting in God. Let's think of people. This is just a wee short one, but do we look to bring people into the kingdom where they sing, worthy is the lamb? Do we look to bring people into that land by softening the message of Jesus, that it would be less offensive or more appealing? Do we want to change the way that God has told us to tell people? so that people would like us more? Do we justify living more worldly, less godly, as a ruse to telling people about Jesus? Me and Leanna were chatting about this just the other day and thinking back to when we were at uni and kind of the the lie that we would sometimes tell ourselves that if we went out and partied really hard, then we'd have more chance to tell people about Jesus. If we live just like the world, then they would see that Christianity is just normal like everything else. Do we use man-made ways to get the God-given promises? And I think the third one is where this hits home the most for us. Because if we have been Christians a long time, we know that we, we trust in Jesus alone. We sing about it all the time. We know that we don't want to change the message of who Jesus is or what it's about. But what about blessings? Let me ask, do we... Grab the blessings of God through means that are not him. It's a a, a harder one to kind of grasp, but essentially the blessings are the presence of God himself. All the good things that his character gives to us by being in relationship with him. The longings of satisfaction, of security, of comfort, of meaning, of identity, of relationships, they're all good and right. God God created us and designed us in such a way that we're meant to long for those things and find them in God himself. All of those things are actually good. We will be fully satisfied when we know God. True security and stability, comfort, meaning, and we will find our true identity. Now let me ask, do we look to grab at those things outside of him? Because God created all things good. And we either misuse or abuse them. And what we do is we chase after the created and not the creator. We look to find satisfaction, security, comfort, relationship, meaning, identity, and a whole host of other things. Joy 
in beauty, in things that he has created and not in God himself. We're like this flower. We're like a flower in the desert that is longing, rightly longing for water and nourishment and flourishing, pointing to the Lord God, pointing to glorify him. And instead of going for the pure fountain of living water, we kind of drink up the dirty desert water, the nutrientless nourishment, the mirage of satisfaction that is offered to us in all that God has created. We look for it outside of him. We look to get the good promises of God from the world in distorted relationships, pornography, status in work, money, worldly comforts, family, all things that were designed good but we have misused or abused them so that we can grab at the promises of God outside of himself. These things don't bring ultimate satisfaction and more than that, they bring disorder and destruction to our lives. We substitute cheaply the blessings of God for the things that he's created. And what we see in Genesis chapter 16, let's take us back to there, what we see is not only that they won't satisfy or live up to the expectations or are good for us, they wreak havoc in our lives. They absolutely run amok. They have devastating effects because sin is messy. Distrusting in God is messy. When we don't trust in God, bad things happen. Just think of Genesis chapter 16. Sarai, Hagar and Abraham. Relationships are destroyed. Hagar and Sarai. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Hagar even. The marriage has been put to the test, to say the least. Abraham's kind of upending the promises that God put his word on in chapter 15. There's this misuse of sex causing havoc. Hagar herself, look at verse 4, becomes proud. And eventually Hagar is pushed away by Sarah. And these are just the short term effects of what goes on here. What happens because of this sin is Ishmael is born, who goes on to be the father of the Moabites. Now, the Moabites are a nation that are a thorn in the side of Israel for the rest of their time throughout the Bible. So it's not even just short term effects here. There are long-term effects we see of sin running a mess. Let me ask, what pain have you ever known that is not directly associated with sin? Sin causes a mess. It ruins relationships on a kind of horizontal level, but also on a vertical level. Just think of some examples. Think of the obsessive parent who is desperate for their child's success, putting all their weight on this child and what they will do. And to do that, they will wreck relationships with peers or friends, other mothers or fathers. They will chase after the success and achievements, putting it all on the child. And in doing so, 
They may even wreck the relationship of father or mother with the child. It just causes destruction. A more obvious example from this passage is the adulterous husband or wife not only ruining the marriage relationship, leaving scars for decades in the lives of their spouse, of their children, of their friends, close family, or the person who just seeks affirmation from their peers, who will climb the social ladder so that they are looked at better, using relationships as kind of a means to an end so that people will look good on them, not caring about the people around them. We go our own way and it just causes a mess. We look to grab at the good promises of God and it causes a mess. We see that with Abraham's distrust in God. We see that in our own distrust in our daily lives. And so, so we've looked at this for quite a while, these six verses. Is the answer trust harder? The, the question was, will Abraham trust in the promises of God? The question for us, will we trust in God's promises, God's way to get the blessings that he has promised us? Is the answer trust harder? I actually don't think so. I think the answer is here, like I said at the start, is painting this picture of Abraham and Sarah is this kind of dark situation. And we're going to see the character of God shining through this. God caring and seeing and hearing and helping and sticking with a people who don't trust him. As it starts, kind of this, the, the jeweler who brings this diamond forward on this black backdrop so that you will see the diamond and all its pricelessness more. That's what's going on here. The purpose of showing Abraham and Sarah's sin and just for what we've done is just look at our own sin and distrust of God is to see God all the more. Imagine, it's like, it's like when you're a school child and your dad pulled up on a motorbike. You were just proud to know him. You're privileged to know the coolest guy you could know. Well, that is what should happen when we read the verses that we read here. Verse 7 to 16. We will see that God is merciful and does not abandon a faithless, sinful people, but remains present and working amongst this troubled trio. He blesses the lost and destitute person. We spend a lot less time on these verses, but just walk through the story with me. Verse 7, the Hagar is running off into the desert. And the end of the Lord, verse 8, speaks to her, says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Then verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered from multitude. What happens here is the angel of the Lord, God himself, blesses Hagar with the same promise that was given to Abraham. It's almost like kind of a reflection. Just by being around these people, he reflects it and gives a promise to Hagar as she's wandering away that she will also have many, many children. We read, if you read on, that it is not the same promise and there are issues. 
let's just read verse 11. Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. And so she says of God, you are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And then verse 15, she returns back to Abraham and Sarai. And the question was, do we try harder? It's absolutely not. The, the, what we do is we look at the God who gave you the promises of blessing. Have a look at God's character in these verses. Verse 11, we see that the child shall be called Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. The, the word Ishmael means God hears. So we see that God hears we see verse 13, that God is a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. We see verse 15 and back up in verse 9 that she is restored to her family, taken back in by Abraham and Sarah into that messy situation. And verse, uh, verse 10 is the key, I think we see that she has been promised many, many children. We see here that, that God is a God who sees the, the woman who's mistreated and wandering in the desert. He sees, he hears, he knows, he restores, and he blesses. Remember how horrific the situation is and God sees and cares for the lost sojourner walking through the desert land. And actually, it's, it's, it's a small thing, but I think it's really helpful to see. Look back up at verse 4. Because though horrific things have happened to Hagar, she's not completely innocent. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, that is Hagar, she looked with contempt on Sarah. She kind of gets proud in the situation. And I say that not because I think Abraham and Sarah rightly get the slamming for what goes on here. But Hagar's not innocent. And so God sees the broken, destitute, suffering sinner and restores and he blesses unnecessarily. How good is our God? He is very much not distant. And we looked at in verses 1 to 6, we are like Abraham and Sarai, like Adam and Eve, we sin. But you know what? We're also like Hagar in this situation. Because sometimes life throws horrific curveballs at us. Whether that be the family that we are brought up in or live in. Whether that be illnesses that affect us, even though we've done nothing to have them, or illnesses that kind of come upon our family. Maybe it's been that people have genuinely just wronged us and we were completely innocent. Life happens like that, but we have also added and sinned ourselves. We have created mess ourselves, caused broken relationships, grabbed at the promises of God and his blessings without trusting in him. 
like that kind of plant in the desert. We are longing for better, just not fully able to grasp it. And God sees, he hears, he cares, he restores, and he blesses beyond measure by sending his son for us. We are kind of wandering aimlessly, we are wandering aimlessly through life, searching for that peace that fits our soul. All that God has promised comes through Jesus Christ. We've been looking for life in a kind of graveyard of despair. And we see here God's character, his protective care for the wandering lost sheep like us. He blesses and he restores. So God doesn't want us to find man-made ways to his glorious life satisfying, purpose-fulfilling, identity-giving blessings. He wants us to trust in him to bring it. And he knows that we're going to fall. And yet he still cares, loves, and sent his son for us, not when we were at our best, but when we were at our very, very worst. He sent his son for us. How great is our God. So in the the time of distrust, see the character of a good God who sees, knows, hears and restores, who has our best interests at heart and is worthy of all praise, honour and trust until we see him face to face again in that place, that land where there will be people singing, worthy is the Lamb, every single one of us covered by the blood of Jesus And where we will find the answer to all our soul-searching longings. Let us try to trust in this God. And know that he is good. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father. When we read things like this we see how horrific it is and it is so much easier to look in and see sin in other people's lives help us to search our own souls remind us of how sinful we are in our outward acts but also just within our hearts for what we long for and want where we want to grab your blessings the wonderful promises that you have given and not trust in you. Lord God, help us to walk godly lives honouring you in all that we do. And help us more and more to see your wonderful character. You are a gracious God who is good to us. Amen.